And I, I read this recently in the uh, National Geographic for Children. It's about my level. So, here we go. This is what it says. You carry around a three-pound mass of wrinkly material in your head that controls every single thing that you do. From enabling you to think, learn, create, and feel emotions to controlling every brink and every blink, every breath and every heartbeat, this fantastic control center is your brain. And it is a structure so amazing that a famous scientist once called it the most complex thing that we have yet discovered in the whole universe. They go on to say, your brain is faster and more powerful than the fastest, most powerful supercomputer. Your brain contains about 100 billion microscopic cells called neurons. There are so many that it would take you over 3,000 years to count them all. Whenever you dream, laugh, think, see, move, it's all because tiny chemicals and electrical signals are racing between these neurons along billions of tiny neuron highways. And believe it or not, the activity in your brain never stops until you're dead, obviously. Countless messages zip around inside it every second like a supercharged pinball machine. Your neurons create and send more messages than all the phones in the entire world. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? And while a single neuron generates only a tiny amount of electricity, all your neurons together can generate enough electricity to power a light bulb. There we are. So, some of us have got amazing brains. Most of us have amazing brains. And God, who is wise and clever enough to design them and to create them and to come up with the idea, is extremely interested in how we use our brains. Now, not for academic excellence, not for uh, intellectual kind of uh, achievements and accomplishments that we can rise to or attain. What God is most concerned about is how we think and what we think about. And thinking is something that most of us do all of the time. In fact, some of us, uh, you know, even when it appears like we haven't been thinking, we are thinking. And some of us might say, what on earth were they thinking? But that person has been thinking because all of us, every second of our lives, sometimes without realizing it, our three pounds of gray matter is constantly at work. But God is concerned about how we think and what we think about and what we uh, fill our minds with. Because thinking above everything else that you and I do controls our actions and our living and really our futures. It affects those things more than anything else that we do. And this is reflected in many different places throughout the scriptures. So, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Solomon warns his son with these words, keep your heart, which is how the Old Testament saints understood that the center of your world, so that really they're talking about your brain, Keep your brain, that center of you, with all vigilance, because from it flows the springs of life. So who you are at the center, heart, brain, however you want to describe it, you need to guard it because from it flows the springs of life. In Mark 7, verse 20 to 23, Jesus says these words, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, out of how we think, out of how we, what we believe, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. 
and they defile a person. So what we think and believe affects how we live and what we do. Paul makes it clear again in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you're able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, just as the saying in our modern world goes, you are what you eat, meaning if you eat a a relatively healthy, balanced diet, you'll probably have a relatively healthy, balanced sort of body. But if you just eat junk food all the time, if you just eat chips and crisps and sweets, good as they might be, you'll end up looking like me. You'll end up fat and with teeth and that are black and you'll end up with cholesterol inside your body and your arteries will be furred and you will likely not enjoy a healthy life. So just as we are what we eat, so there is a connection between our inner lives and our outer lives. If you like, we are what we think. So if we fill our minds with junk, with ungodly values, with godless and anti-god kind of pop culture, that will affect how we live. We will be weak, we will be susceptible to fall. Sin will more easily overtake us and we might wander away from God. So we need proper mindfulness, if I can call it that. We need to fill our minds with thoughts of God and his word. If we, uh, we, we are to set our minds on the things above, Paul will say in Colossians uh, chapter 3. For in doing so, when we set our minds where Christ is, that will produce strength to live rightly for God and his glory. It's a, it's a little bit like garbage in, garbage out. Holy living in, holy, or holy thinking in, ho- holy living out. Wrong thinking in, wrong living out. And this is no more clearly seen, really, if you want one verse, than, and this isn't our verse for the day, but the, it's, this is the best example in Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, Paul says this, The mind set on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh, on this world, is death. But to set the mind on the spirit, the things of God, on Christ, is life and peace. For there is no lasting change, no meaningful, Christ-exalting, sin-killing sanctification and growing to be like Jesus without right thinking. What you do with your three-pound wrinkly mass of grey matter matters to God. And if you're not already convinced, let me, let me give you one other uh, reason why what we're about to look at from Philippians chapter 8 is so important. If you've got your Bibles open, just look with me at verses 4 to 7 that precede the verse that we're about to look at. In chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to all, to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ 
Jesus. So three verses there, wonderful truth that Paul speaks about how God tells us to deal with anxiety, that we are to prayerfully and diligently bring everything to him in prayer. And if we do that, we will supernaturally experience God's peace that will guard our hearts and our minds. Now, some people, hopefully nobody in this room, but some people think that freedom from anxiety, that freedom from living a distracted life, an overstimulated life, a multitasking, stress-fueled life, comes by trying to empty your mind, in, somehow according to kind of like Zen Buddhist principles of Eastern kind of meditation. And this has taken on a relatively new form of uh, of of doing, which is called mindfulness, and I'm not going to get into that, but most people think, oh, deal with your anxiety, clear your mind, empty your thoughts, and God would say to us, by connecting verses 4 to 7 with verse 8, no. Because look at what Paul goes on to say. The word finally is a little bit of a uh, misplaced or mistranslated word. It really should just mean and, because it's flowing on, okay? So, Here's what he said, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the connection between verses 4 to 7 and verse 8 is this. Part of the way that God provides peace, that guards our hearts and our minds, is not by having us empty our minds, it is by having us fill our minds with the right stuff. So, if you're anxious this morning about something, maybe you're not filling your minds with the right stuff. A mind properly full of the things that God prescribes will leave little room for anxiety-producing, peace-disrupting, joy-destroying thoughts. A person's life is the product of their thinking. All right? And so the deposits that we make in our minds will yield a return with interest in our lives. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6 that the seeds that we sow, they will produce a harvest. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap a harvest of destruction. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap a harvest of righteousness by those who are trained by it. So all of this is important because what we're about to see in our one verse wonder in verse 8 is God is concerned about how we think because from it flows what we do. And if we think right, it will help us when we're anxious. So there's two great reasons to think rightly. Now let's jump in to verse 8 and let's read it again because it's brilliant. Brothers and sisters, finally brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That is a comprehensive description of the thought life for the Christian. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not, um, you can't afford the luxury of a negative thought, which is some of the self-help books that you can buy on the internet. But with 
as one commentator describes it, with a glorious beauty and a gentle brutality. There we go, a glorious beauty, it draws us on, and then a gentle brutality that says, wow, these are high standards. Paul is providing timeless principles that stretch over cultures, that stretch over centuries, that stretch over continents to describe how Christians should think. And the first thing that you should notice from verse 8, before we unpack the eight words that are piled on top of one another, is Paul uses the word whatever. Now, that's a familiar phrase to many of us. There was a film growing up when I was a kid uh, that used to to talk about whatever, like that, and they used to do the sign, whatever, and it was a kind of a dismissive thing. Well, Paul's not using it dismissively here. The repetition of the word whatever is designed to impress upon our hearts the comprehensive scope of these virtues and how this command is supposed to impact our lives. So a life of thinking rightly in ways that honour God is made up of daily and hourly thoughts and acts that are characterised by these virtues in whatever area of life. So our thinking should affect our relationships. It should reflect how we use our time and our energy. It should reflect how we uh, spend our money, what we do and say at work, how, what clothes we buy, scrolling through or posting on social media. It should affect our surfing of the internet. It should affect where we go with our friends. It should affect what we do when we're alone, what we watch on the TV, and any and all other areas of life, whatever. So it's, a, it's, it's describing a comprehensive scope of how we're supposed to think in whatever area of life that we are faced with. God is telling us that we've got to think in a particular way. But the whatever also uh, plays another important function because it encourages us that these virtues are not just exclusively Christian. They can be found in the world around us as well. So the whatever is an invitation to cast our nets really, really wide. It's an invitation for us to, where Paul basically says, or God says to us, there is so much in this world that you should see and give thanks to God for. So for instance, in creation, there's sparkling sunbeams and cascades of waterfalls and snow-tipped mountaintops and incredible animals and beautiful sunsets and sandy beaches and misty-covered green rolling hills and wonderful underwater, undersea creatures that no one has, you know, discovered before. Natural beauty in all that God has made. That is included in the whatevers. But there's also this idea that God includes common grace that he gives to his people and to his creation. The goodness, by common grace, I mean the goodness and the grace of God whereby he bestows on even unbelievers good gifts, talents, skills that are designed to make life enjoyable. And livable. So there are countless contributions that are made by Christians and non-Christians alike that fit under these virtues that could be celebrated and we could give thanks to God for. Works of art, literature, film, music, theatre, paintings, sculptures, food, architecture, good design, medicine, discovery, exploration, research. People who give generously to, to charity to help others in need. Or people who give of their bodies in, in organ donations and in blood donations and in bone marrow donations to help others. Or as we've just watched it for the last two weeks, if you're like uh, some of us in our family, you know, 
men and women who train their bodies and discipline their bodies to accomplish extraordinary feats in the Olympics. These are all things that can fall into the whatever category as well. Whatever and wherever we see these virtues appearing in the broader culture, we should identify them, we should think on them, we can embrace them, and we should give glory to God for them and his common grace towards us. Now, what are these virtues? Well, let's look together. Firstly, he says, whatever is true. That means in its broadest sense, what is reliable, what is dependable, what is faithful, things that are real rather than things that are apparent. So he's not encouraging us to think about half-truths or what we hope to be true, but things that are proven to be true. They're genuine. They're authentic. There's an objective reality to them. Believe, think on, fill your minds with true things. Now, in a narrow sense, that obviously means um, putting aside falsehoods and lies and believing that which is true, which is utmostly seen in the scriptures that reveal the the God of truth to us. So those things that are true, those things that are not false, those things that are not half-truths, those things that are not lies, but those things that reflect God's character and truth and word. Secondly, he says honourable. That could be translated noble, lofty, dignified, majestic, principled. He wants us to think about things that deserve respect and reverence. Really, the word honourable is a call to get your mind out of the gutter and get your head out off and your attention off of frivolous things. Then he says, think about things that are just, things that are right, things that are in harmony with God, things that are defined and live up to God's standards and God's righteousness. The idea behind the word just is is in in, in the ancient Near East marketplace, there would always be a scales, a balance, Remember those old-fashioned balances? Not like the digital scales of our day, but the old-fashioned balances where you were, it's the idea of putting all of God's holiness on one side and then whatever you're thinking about, does it, does it balance up with what God thinks, with God's holiness, with God's righteousness? Because if it doesn't, then you've got a problem, one way or the other. So that's what it means by just or right. Does it match up to God's standards of righteousness and justice? Then he says, whatever is pure. That means holy, that means innocent, that means morally and ethically pure. It means upright, it means not filthy, it means not corrupt. It means don't think about things that are tainted in some way by sin and evil. That could be purity of thoughts, purity of motives, purity of actions. It encompasses all areas of purity, especially sexual purity, but all areas of purity. Think about those things that are pure. And then he says lovely. Think about those things that are lovely, those things that call forth love. Those things that are lovely, those things that are beautiful in God's eyes. Those things that inspire love, those things that are pleasing and agreeable. That they're like an appealing fragrance that makes you go, ooh, that's nice. Then he says commendable. Those things that are agreeable amongst us and are commended by God. They're well spoken of by others. And they're more likely to win people over and win people round than they are to offend them. That's, the word, that's what the word commendable means. 
So true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Six incredible words there. But then he, he gives two more kind of summary phrases at the end of verse 8. Because those six words just aren't exhaustive enough. So he kind of throws in these two words that are kind of catch-all. So he says, if anything is excellent, that means if anything has really, is worthy of high standards and, and, the, and reflects the excellencies of God, think about these things. And if anything is praiseworthy, anything that could be applauded in the presence of God, anything that could be celebrated in the presence of God, think about such things. True, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Uh, When you combine them all together, it's like a stunning portrait of how we're supposed to think. Now, if you're still confused and your grey matter hasn't kicked in yet, let me read them the other way. Here's how we shouldn't think. Do not think about things that are untrue or lies. Whatever is vulgar and dirty, do not think about them. Whatever is unjust or unrighteous, do not think about them. Whatever is impure or sleazy and evil or unlovely or disgusting or condemnable, do not think about such things. Whatever is reprehensible and worthy of derision, do not think about such things. So really Paul is getting at us. If I say it like this, maybe maybe it'll just help you to remember it. Be careful who you put behind the, the driving seat and the, and the steering wheel of your life. Be careful who you let behind the steering wheel of your life and your mind because they, what you think about will drive you sometimes where you don't want to go or it will drive you towards God. And we just got to be careful about who we allow behind the steering wheel of our minds. And I think, although Paul obviously didn't know it at the time, there... There's a warning here for our modern world. The contemporary media often portrays the antithesis of Philippians 4 verse 8. Portrays content which is sexualized and violent and crude and blasphemous and intolerant. And Paul's call here in verse 8 is really a, a demand to think through whether sometimes and some things require the discipline of refusal. So let me ask you a question as we think this through. How often do you and I slow down and scrutinise what we think? How often do we ask the questions, where's my mind? Where's it been? Where's it going? What do I dwell on? What grabs my attention the most? And then once we've thought about that, we've got to ask ourselves the question, does this help? Does this thing that is put before me, do I need to refuse it? Or is it something that's going to help me renew my mind and give glory to God? And we should think about what we put before our eyes in so many different ways. What we put before our ears, what we put before our minds, what we put before our hearts. Whether it's the media, social media, the internet, films, music, TV, Netflix, magazines, books, whatever it might be. We should ask ourselves the question, at least the question, does this reflect the values of Philippians 4 verse 8? Does it tally up? Does it fit? Does it help me to love what God loves? Does it help me to think what God thinks after him? If not, 
then perhaps I should refuse it. You see, God is giving us, in verse 8, a plan for how we renew our minds. He wants us to primarily think about the things that he approves of, so that we might be shaped to think like him, so that we might stand firm, so that we... These are things that that Paul talks about in Philippians. He, He wants us to stand firm. He wants us to stand out from the surrounding culture. He wants us to be effective agents of grace. He wants us to become more like Jesus. He wants us to live lives that are worthy of our citizenship in heaven, and he wants us to bring glory to God. And one of the ways that we do that is in how we think. And verse 8 is a command, it's not a counsel. And the word, if you go on to say, after, these, after all of these, this list of whatevers, whatever is true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, and then here's the command, think about such things. Think about such things. The language there, the, the, the Greek, I want to get technical, but the language conveys the, an idea of, Deliberate, active, ongoing, consistent, constant, persistent, prolonged, pondering and giving appropriate weight and value to these things in such a way that they begin to influence us in how we live, that we say, I've got to refuse that, I'm going to accept that, I'm going to rejoice in that, I'm going to, no, I'm going to reject that. And it builds discernment. Now, this is hard work, especially if we've never practiced it before or we're out of practice from it. But this is part of the fight of faith for us as Christians. And one we've got to engage with numerous times a day. And Paul didn't write this and I didn't preach this in a sort of a conspiracy to rob you of your joy and your happiness and fun in life. But precisely the opposite. Look at what he says in verse 9. He goes on to to talk about his own example. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So he says, think about how I was when I was with you. And the implication and the assumption is that he was always thinking about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent and worthy of praise. You've seen it in me, you've received it, you've heard it. Paul says to the, to the Philippians, and then he says, practice these things. Why? Because then the peace of God will be with you. This is not just the long-term denial of pleasure. This is Paul's recipe for proper experience of pleasure and delight and the peace of God. It is for freedom and joy and love that God calls us to fight the fight in our minds and to think about these things. So ask yourself this question. When you read verse 8 of Philippians, do these virtues in this command, do they resonate with your heart or do they chafe you at the thought of them? Do they feel liberating or oppressive? Do you find yourself thanking God for emphasising these things or resentful that he's put constraints on you that you would rather ignore? Because the way you answer those questions will tell you much about the state of your heart. What we need is proper mindfulness. Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent or worthy of praise, think about such things. And do you know what the, the epitome of the whatever is? Jesus, isn't he? Jesus is the epitome of whatever. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Captain of our salvation, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Redeemer, the Eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God who came and gave himself for you and me as a substitute for our sins. He is the ultimate whatever, fully embodying the perfection of every quality listed in verse 8. He's a saviour who is perfectly true, completely honourable, inestimably just, blazingly pure, indescribably lovely, eternally excellent, and worthy of all praise. The Puritan John Owen once said this, it is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually built up in this world. It is by by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. Paul says it differently. We've already referenced it in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. And the result of thinking like this, the peace of God and the God of peace will be with you. To those who give attention to what they think about and they shape their minds to think God's thoughts after him, he promises his own presence as the God of peace. So, in verses 4 to 7, he tells us that when we pray, he will send us his peace to be in us, to guard our hearts and our minds. And in verse 9, he says, when we think rightly, the God of peace will be with us. He'll be in us and he'll be with us. What more could we possibly hope for? Let's pray.